to the New Money Review podcast, The Future of Money in 30 Minutes. I'm Paul Amory, the editor of New Money Review. We're a periodical covering the changes in money, which are getting faster and more confusing. New types of money arrive out of nowhere, like Bitcoin. Payments get faster and cheaper. Cash goes out of fashion and mobile payments take over. Some people are on the inside track, others risk being left behind. Money attracts the cleverest criminals who always seem to stay ahead of the game. Our podcast takes a big picture look at these trends. It's not just money that's changing, but technology, finance, law, government and society with it. Each week we interview a leading expert on one or more of these topics. By listening to the podcast, you can stay up to date with what's going on in money and prepare yourself for what lies ahead. My guest on this episode of the podcast is Nilixa Devlukia, who's a London-based expert on the payment system who worked previously as a banker and as a senior policymaker at the UK's financial services regulator, the Financial Conduct Authority. Nilixa, welcome to the New Money Review podcast. Could you please start by telling listeners a bit about yourself and your area of work? Hi, yeah. Hello, Paul. It's good to speak with you. Um, I'm Nilixa Vlukia. I'm a uh, regulatory payments expert. I've Worked many years in retail banking for one of the large UK banks. Uh, from there, I moved to the Financial Conduct Authority and was their policy lead on all matters related to payments and payment services, including e-money. During that time, I was also on cons- cons- was also on secondment to the European Banking Authority, working on PSD2 mandates, and I was. Uh, the lead policy person for the FCA for all things related to PSD2. I've also, um, since leaving the FCA, been the head of regulatory at the Open Banking Implementation Entity. And for the past, I would say, 18 months or so, I've been working a lot on um, digital currencies and central bank digital currencies. Okay, great. Thank you very much for that overview. So you've, you've been at the heart of the payments policy work in Europe for... A decade or two. Uh, yeah. Let's not go to two. Let's leave it at a decade, right. shall we? <laughs> yeah, I haven't checked my dates exactly. A, dec- a decade. <laughs> but, um, yes. I was thinking and- back to the, the origins of the payment services directives, which I think were, the first one came around it in was, 2000. It was. So, it was. Yeah. And interestingly, I've actually, in some ways, quite a novice to payments. Um, having spent many years at a retail bank, I did all things related to um, commercial bank activity, business banking, uh, retail mortgages, consumer lending. Um, And it was only sort of at the very end of my uh, time at the bank that I sort of discovered payments and decided that was my niche. So in some ways, I'm quite a newcomer to the payments industry. But yes, I've focused very much on um, policy within the EU and the UK. Right. So let's. We're at the turning of the the year. We're a few days away from twenty twenty one. I mean, we, perhaps we could look back over the the year that's coming to an end. It's been a very eventful one for all of us, I guess. Um, let's start with the coronavirus and what impact has the pandemic had on the payments uh, business as a whole? Oh well, I mean, without a doubt, it's accelerated the use of digital payments. I think that you know, setting aside the challenges that everybody in industry and personally has faced during this very difficult time. The measures that firms have had to put in place, the changes that consumers have had to make 
has meant that and, and will mean that we all manage, I think, our money and our payments differently as we move forward. And if you link that with the the need um, and the benefits that open banking provided, particularly, I think, to, to businesses um, when they were trying to access funding and um, the support schemes uh, set up by the government, I think that in, in addition to digital payments, um, you know, for all the very wrong reasons, coronavirus um, and the current situation is, is probably going to um, give a, a kickstart to open banking, particularly for businesses. So open banking is, as I understand it, is the is the UK version of the Payment Services Directive, which was a, a Europe-wide initiative that's been you know, unfolding since since 2000. And Europe's taken the lead in, in many ways in bringing its payments infrastructure um, you know, up to date with modern technology, if that's if I understand that correctly. Um, yes, there, there, there is definitely a technology piece to the open banking conversation. Uh, in the UK, we've we, we've we've got this term open banking, and, it, and it's used globally, but it's very it's primarily about um, firms that are not the provider of your bank account having access to the data within your uh, primarily bank account. Um, in order to provide you with analysis, value-added services, or to be able to make payments out of your account. So you have account information service providers and payment initiation service providers. In the UK, the the nine largest banks were subject to an order by the Competition and Markets Authority that basically mandated that they had to open up access to their account data and that they had to do it via APIs, application protocol interfaces. Gosh, you know, it's between Christmas and New Year, and I can't even quite <laughs> sure if I'm getting what API means correct. But um, um, but PSD2 doesn't mandate that you have to do it via APIs. But we are now, of course, seeing um, this move to, from open banking to open finance to open data. Within the UK, we're still waiting for the FCA's response to its consultation on open finance, um, which obviously has been delayed because of all the challenges that everybody, including the regulator, has faced this year. And of course, the European Commission published its uh, retail payment strategy. And within that, it has already said that it will be reviewing PSD2 um, and looking at how to bring open finance into the financial ecosystem within Europe. So you mentioned that open uh, banking has served as a, a kind of the, the the base level, I suppose, for a, a move towards open open finance and then open data. Um, it's, it's, does that mean this is a model for um, the interactions between consumers and service providers across the economy, not just in finance in future? Oh, absolutely. Um, and if you look across at uh, what Australia's done, because they've started sort of from a, a top-down approach rather than a bottom-up approach. They've started with very um, all-encompassing legislation called the Consumer Data Right, um, which covers uh, industry, many industries beyond, you know, the utilities, telecoms, so beyond those in financial services, but have started with implementation um, of the actual 
technical requirements within the financial services sector with an aim that this access to data will be available across sectors. Um, and obviously within the UK, we've also, we've sort of started with open banking, we're going to open finance. And obviously, um, there is also consultations um, across government, uh, and particularly at Bayes, uh, which did the, uh, the sort of smart data review as to how the data that is held by other providers beyond your financial services providers can be um, brought together so that there is this holistic overview that will allow for competition and innovation and better um, products, not just in financial services, but better products overall for consumers. So, so what, what has this done in terms of, um, you know, what effect has this had on the structure of the of the financial sector? Does this mean that the, the banks are, are being reduced to a kind of utility function and all the value-added stuff is going to the various service providers on top, that the ones that are collecting and interpreting your data and providing you with new value-added services. You know, how, how, is the, how have the power relations shifted within the financial markets? So the worry, I think, for the banks uh, at the start of this was that they might be uh, might be left as uh, utility dump pipes. Um, but I, th- I think that definitely the banks have... Um, looked at their business models, up their game. And um, actually, if you think about it, they, they do have a slight advantage, don't they? Because they already have the customer relationship and the, hold the data already. And um, in the UK, many, if not all of the, the major banks provide their own open banking style services. But I think that what we have also seen is a change in the in the relationships um, between banks and newcomers and fintech. So it's much more about partnering, partnering, collaboration rather than a them and us approach. And I think that's got to be a good thing. It's got to provide for easier, better, accessible financial services. And to what extent do you think we've achieved that? To what extent have financial services become you know, easier to use, more cost effective? I can think of a number of you know, services that I can now access on my mobile phone from you know, instant payments within, the, within a particular country or cross-border payments or budgeting services, um, fund, fundraising and, and uh, kind of crowdfunding initiatives that, uh, you know, all these things are, are relatively new. Has, has it been a... Uh, you know, is it fair to say that there's a, uh, a whole host of new and positive um, services now available, or is it a, is it a more of a mixed picture? I mean, is there complexity to go along with the innovation? I definitely think it's it's a mixed picture. Um, I think that firms are at different stages of their own journeys in how they interact with their customers, how they digitize their products, how they upgrade their infrastructure. Um, and obviously, the newcomers in the fintechs have an advantage in, in that respect because they don't have the legacy to deal with. I think that um, oh, there's probably, you know, all sorts of philosophical conversations we have about this, but at the sort of heart of all of this is the fact that the the majority of people now um, in the UK and across the globe have have mobile phones. Many of them have smartphones, and so these services are absolutely in the palm of our hand. Um, if you look at the advent of you know uptake of digital services, all the stats show that uptake is now 
accelerated because of the use of of the mobile phone. Um, And I think it's fair to say that, you know, even if you're a slow adopter and and you've gone through that stage of sort of, you know, online banking um, and, and moved to mobile banking, I think that, you know, most people will find that if, if they've got the app on their phone, they don't log into their old mobile um, online banking anymore because they don't have to and they don't need to and it's much more convenient. Um, the challenge I think that firms have going forward is really to think about the user experience. I mean, I personally have um, a couple of mobile banking apps on my phone and there is definitely one that is much easier to more easier to use, uh, slicker, more intuitive. And so interestingly, that's the bank that I now prefer to go to uh, and look for my financial services from. Yeah, I mean, I, 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 I completely, my experience completely chimes with yours. And I, I mean, I've gone from you know, paying for a, a, a reasonable amount of transactions in cash a year ago to doing almost nothing in cash now. And, uh, uh, and, and also, um, you know, using a number of these different apps on my phone to to, to make payments, not necessarily my main, for my main bank account. Uh, it's uh, and also using uh, Google Pay on my phone rather than paying with a card. These are all things that I've was initially perhaps skeptical about doing, uh, and I've just kind of gone along with it, gone along with the, the flow. So these things are, I guess, this is being multiplied uh, around the world. Uh, we're seeing it. Um, you know, happen everywhere. I'm just wondering what kind of power this is. This is, uh, or is this leading to unexpected or unintended concentrations of power in the hands of certain technology firms? You know, the regulators completely up to speed with what's going on, or the competition authorities. You know, where do you see the the remaining pressure points or things that need ironing out? Oh well, obviously, competition has been the focus of financial services for a long time, and and will continue to be so for a long time in the future. The, the concentration of power, particularly in, in the big techs, as we know, um, is the focus of many regulators and, in effect, many governments already. When you look at the uh, the legislation being proposed in Europe, you look at the actions being taken in America by the judiciary and the government there. I think that, um, you know, it's a direction of travel that's going to continue. Uh, I, I have no insights and really I, I'm really on the fence as to where it will will land, as to whether or not um, we will see uh, a dilution of, of the power that the big techs have. I, I think that what's driven some of this scrutiny was very much that announcement by Facebook um, or a what, a couple of years ago now, when it launched its Libra initiative? Yeah. Because that very much told the financial services industry and, in effect, central banks and really made them sit up and think that here was a a firm that wasn't in the financial services space that could actually uh, really mint money. Yeah. Didn't need financial services industry, didn't need banks, and didn't need central banks. And to be honest, I think that scared the bejesus out of them. Yeah. Uh, I mean, yeah. you look at everything that's happened since then uh, and all of the focus that there has been on uh, digital currencies, on um, the Financial Stability Board uh, putting out its view on stable coins on the MECA legislation being proposed within Europe, the UK government saying it's going to propose legislation for crypto uh, assets. I think that 
that is just one piece of the jigsaw that, that's meant that regulators and uh, legislators across the globe are looking at the power of technology. I mean, you think that in China, the the digital yuan initiative um, is seen by many as being a, a step by the central bank there to take power back from um, the the fintechs that, you know, have huge market share out in China. Yeah. And we've recently seen the Chinese authorities slapping down um, Ant's group, uh, whose Alipay uh, uh, subsidiary is one of the biggest players in the world now in, in fintech. Uh, you know, they've, they've clearly made it... Uh, they said to to uh, and group that they you know they 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 should probably back down a bit. It seems to be the most people's reading the situation. So the the governments are kind of trying to fight back against the power of the the big techs and the large fintechs. Yeah, definitely. So, uh, I mean, there's there is, there is I think merit in what they're looking at because and okay, this could be being really old fashioned, but. In my view, if you want to play in the financial services space, you should take the responsibility of doing that. And there are a number of initiatives that these these tech firms um, are looking at or have launched where they are they are just on that cusp. They want to be in financial services, but they don't want to take the regulation that comes with being in financial services. And I just think that's fundamentally wrong. Yeah, yeah. So th- this debate is going to continue for a number of years, I imagine, and we're going to see more and more clashes and initiatives from different parties involved. It's going to be a very interesting but probably also complex area to follow. It is. And I should just add, when I say I think it's fundamentally wrong, I think it's because it's bad for consumers. Um, In that you should have uh, the same protections uh, for making payments or or where you keep your money, uh, pretty much whether it's with, with a bank or a fintech or a big tech firm. Well, can I ask you then about some of those uh, consumer protections? Because I know that this is an area you've you've focused a lot on uh, in your work, and it's been an interesting area for me to 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 cover in the last year because of what happened at Wirecard and the the, the insolvency of that big uh, German payments firm, which which raised some questions about how secure um, customers' money was if it was held in the form of e-money or electronic money uh, as opposed to being a deposit in a traditional bank account. Um, and that's only one consumer protection uh, angle. I guess there's a, a big question about consumers' refund rights um, if they've paid for something and haven't received the goods or services they were expecting. Um, what, what, are, you know, what are the main consumer protection concerns that, that you have as an observer of this uh, you know, fast-evolving payments industry? So I think that the, the the one that's always niggling at me is this distinction between deposit guarantee schemes and safeguarding. Yeah. Um, because, uh, well, if safeguarding is being done well, um, then... So just for, for listeners who may not be familiar with the UK rules or the European rules, so de- uh, deposit guarantee schemes would be somewhat, you know, that, that would cover uh, money held on deposit in a bank. And safeguarding is something that is specifically used for e-money or payment services firms. That's right. Um, in the, the the deposits you hold in a bank are covered by deposit guarantee schemes. Um, in the UK, I think, is it 85,000? I can't yeah, quite I remember. It's something like that for yeah. a bank account yeah. anyway. Um, and then because 
payment and e-money institutions are not credit institutions. There's a different regime that applies to them in that they have to actually safeguard 100% of your money, which actually is, you know, if if people have that much money with uh, payment and e-money firms, and obviously it's a better uh, protection than deposit guarantee scheme. But the challenge is, is that... Um, the money that is held by these firms are held in bank accounts, but those bank accounts are not covered by the deposit guarantee scheme. So although everything is fine while the payment institution is operating and you should be covered in the event that the payment or money institution um, becomes insolvent, there's no protection for consumers if the, the bank where the account is held um, becomes insolvent. And that's right. So let's, let's, let's give it a, 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 a couple of examples just to, to explain how this works. So if I put my money, let's say, in, in, in a Barclays uh, bank account, that's di- that's protected in the UK up to an £85,000 limit. But if I put it into um, uh, <clears throat> an e-money firm, let's say Revolut, which is a popular one, uh, that's not covered by deposit insurance, but they are supposed to safeguard the money that I've given them by placing it uh, on a, in a bank account with a with another with a bank. So it's there is kind of a bank at the end of the chain that's that's holding yes. the money. But, it, but yeah. it may not be. It's not protected formally in the same way as a as a support as, as a deposit guarantee scheme would work. No, it's not because if the bank that that money was held in became insolvent, it's not covered by the deposit guarantee scheme. Right. right. Um, so you have less control as a, as that as the as the owner of the you know the the original owner of the money. You have less control over what's uh, you know, where, where it's gone and. and Yes, and as insolvencies um, that have taken place in the UK have shown, it's not easy for the liquidators to return the money that's held in these accounts as well. I mean, we know that safeguarding is 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 a complex thing to do well, and um, you know because we're often talking about lots lots of consumers with with relatively small amounts of money, they're not necessarily easy to track down either. Right. so I think that they, and oh, I should add that, you know, holding the money in a bank account is not the only way that firms can safeguard. They can hold an insurance, but again, getting getting that insurance is very difficult for firms as well. Um, I think that there are challenges now in that we have the advent of um, other means of payment like cryptocurrencies and digital currencies. Um, that are not actually backed by anybody and carry no protection. Now, the, the consumer protection that has been put in place um, by many sort of regulators across the globe is to actually ban them or restrict their use. Yes. You know, we don't actually maybe think of that as consumer protection, but that's what it is to say you are at risk if you choose to use these types of asset to make payment. Yeah. Um, And we're seeing movement now, aren't we, with uh, Mika um, and other legislation that, well, you know, these assets are here to stay. They will be used for payments. Um, They should have a better consumer protection framework around them. Yes, yes. But people are clear that, I mean, I think people in cryptocurrencies probably know that if they send their bitcoins to the wrong address, they they probably, you know, they've almost certainly lost uh, lost their money. Yes. Yeah, I would have thought so. Um, and, you know, but then even within the, within the, the uh, traditional 
financial services space, we're still seeing that the the misdirected payments issue um, and um, scams. Yeah. <laughs> where, yeah. Um, yeah, where someone's someone's uh, enticed to send money to someone they yes, shouldn't really exactly. It's not working well. Quite often, and quite and quite often the bank is is then uh, you know I understand you know forced to repay the clients or to step in and compensate the the, yeah. the, the, the aggrieved party. Yeah, and there's an agreement that backs that, um, but it's not working well. You know, yeah. and and I have to say that in this respect, you know, I have absolute sympathy with people who are caught by these scams that lose money but i'm also not without sympathy for the banks because it's a fraud on them as well yes 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 um you know so it's a challenging situation all around but i don't think that the measures that have been put in place uh, are actually um meeting the needs of consumers who have been defrauded um and it just seems to be very ad hoc Yes, and, and, and judging by well. the judging by the statistics that I read, the, the you know the volume and and sophistication of these scams and attacks is going up. The volumes the, the volumes of money involved are going up. Um, with coronavirus, and then this is maybe a slightly different, uh, but maybe related subject. Uh, you know, the number of people paying for things and then not receiving them also went up. So it's a it's a it's a complex and fast evolving area, isn't it? And, and it so, is. where do you think the whole where do you think this whole debate is heading? Do you think we're going to end up all Paying some kind of insurance premium to have uh, the right to, you know, to, to, you know, to claim some money back if something goes wrong, or is it, is it too difficult? And there's, there's, there's not a kind of a, there's no sort of single policy that would work. Oh, there, there's, there's, there's lots of threads to the question you've just asked me, Paul. I, th- I think the thing is that with everything we've seen happen this year, um, consumers are realising that they cannot take for granted that they will get a refund or get their money back um, and that, you know, your entitlements can well depend on how you've paid for something. Yes. So, you know, we have inbuilt protections when we pay for things with cards. Um, yes. There's the chargeback scheme. There's the the Section 75 protection, which is hugely valuable if you're, you know, been paying for large ticket items like holidays. With a credit card. Exactly. Yeah. Um. And, you know, on the face of it, these things are free. Obviously, nothing's ever free, but on the face of it, they're free. Yeah. But I do wonder if we will see maybe a little bit more honesty within the financial services market that, look, if you you can have this protection, but we're going to charge you for it. Now, I'm not saying, you know, it should be if, if that we move to that, it should be a fair and reasonable amount. But, you know, that could be a choice that people make going forward. That yes. do I want these protections? Um, you know, be- because they do, I mean, for those consumers that have benefited from these protections this year, they're probably very thankful that they're there. Um, yes. That's not to say there are not protections when you pay direct from your bank account. Um, but obviously, it- it's not quite the same. Um if you're just paying uh, direct from your bank account, from me to you, you are reliant on just the person who's received the money sending it back to you or yes. giving it back to you. Yes. Um, whereas, you know, if you've got uh, the rules that sit in the card schemes or you've got Section 75 protection, you've got other avenues that you can pursue there. Right. 
Um, so it's a very it's a very uneven picture, and and, and there are plenty of scope for consumers to to be confused. Uh, and, and I think it's very easy with some clarity because, in this area. Yeah, it's very easy for consumers to be confused, and I think that one of the the biggest problems and one of the most difficult things to cha- um, to tackle is actually consumer education for financial services. Um, You know, I I don't think it's something that's addressed very well, um, necessarily, even in schools or as we move through life. Um, You know, and some of those basics, I think, are definitely valuable knowledge for all of us. Um, We all have to interact with financial services at some point. And, you know, there is that sort of lack of understanding of, you know, what is the benefit of paying with a card? What is the benefit of paying direct for my bank account? What is the benefit of using a direct debit as opposed to a standing order? Yeah, yeah. And, and what kinds of um, remedies can we expect if we are defrauded? I mean, presumably at some point you want to, you know, people are being greedy or, you know, trying to do something they shouldn't be doing. You want, they should have, they should suffer some, uh, you know, some punishment for that. So uh, you shouldn't expect to refund everything. Uh, yeah, but, but but then fraud is a different challenge, isn't it? Um, and I think that that's the point is, you know, we, we've seen a move in industry to make payments much more secure. We have SCA um, in order to minimise card not present fraud. Yeah. Um, and, you know, there's, that's, there's, that's secure customer authentication. That's like two, two factor authentication yeah, two or factor other authentication. similar, similar um, models. Yeah, exactly. Um, but as as payment, and we're not there yet. There's lots of different um, deadlines I know that I think are being followed across Europe because of um, the delays in implementation that have occurred because of um, the COVID crisis. But fraud is never going to go away. So, yeah. you know, the, the, the question in my mind is, so what's going to be the next thing? You know, um, I'm probably grateful that I don't think like a fraudster. I don't know what the next thing is going to be. But, you know, the fraud is not going to go away. So where is it going to materialize next? And I think that's the challenge that um, we all have as consumers and industry faces and regulators face. Yeah, yeah. And I guess an old uh, rule is that if something looks too good to be true, it it probably is. Well, yeah, absolutely. You know, don't don't fall for for the scam emails and, you know, try not to be caught out. And it's very easy. I mean, you yeah. know, we, I'm sure you have. I have. I've taken yeah. a call that it's like, oh, the, yeah. hold on, okay, and it's taken me a little while to think maybe this isn't quite right. Yeah, yeah, and we're all prone to clicking on a link that we shouldn't click on, and and the the fraudsters, as you say, are becoming increasingly sophisticated, uh, and you know they target people very well. Absolutely, especially when it's something you're expecting, you know. Yeah. So yeah. it is. It yeah. is. It is easily, easily, um, you know, done, and that you know we we are all susceptible. Yeah, let, let let me ask you a, a you know very big picture question to to finish. You, you, we started by talking about payment services regulations in Europe. Um, uh, we, we then talked a bit about open banking, and then you mentioned that open banking is uh, is kind of the, the the setting the ground for open finance and open data. So my my question is, you know, should the regulation of payments uh, and uh, and finance be any different from uh, the regulation of data, given that these things seem to be all all merging into one whole? I, I think that um, there needs to be maybe a different approach. Um, we, we've PSD two in this um, sort of uh, not PSD sort of PSD two 
uh, allowed for access to data. You know, data is not about payments. It's about data. Yeah. Um, and data is valuable. You know, data is the new oil or the new gold, as they say. Mm. And I think that there needs to be um, serious thought given to how is access to data managed. Um, and in my view, that's what should be the regulated activity mm. is the access to data. And then you could carve it so that uh, if it's access to financial services data, maybe it comes with more requirements, restrictions, supervision, authorization, as opposed to maybe access to mobile phone data. Mm. You know, And this is sort of just thoughts that I'm sharing with you, Paul. You know, it's not a, a well-formed opinion or whatever. Yeah. But I just think that we shouldn't try to shoehorn data um, and payments into the same piece of legislation going forward um, and should treat them distinctly because the risks are different. Yeah. You know, if my payment goes missing, I know my payment has gone missing and what the consequences are at that yes. point in time. Yes. If my data is hacked, yeah. I don't know when any abuse is going to happen or fraud yes. going to happen because it could be two years down the line. Right. Or you could be, you know, your your all of our data could be being exploited by a large social media company to influence elections and we only realize 10 years later that this has happened and we've suddenly lost our, exactly. our democracy and i so think this is a difficult to pin pin down a point in time at which uh, the the offense occurs exactly and i think the other yeah. thing that needs yeah. to be addressed is data barter hmm. um and by that i mean that um you know when we access services for free yeah often the payment is with our data Yes, and it yes. should be more explicit to consumers that 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 is the bargain that they are that's making. The, that's the cost. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and so, finally, what key things are you keeping an eye on for twenty twenty one? Any particular trends or regulations you're, that have caught your attention and you're focusing your work on? Oh uh, well, very much on uh, the regulations around uh, crypto assets, uh, digital currencies. Um, of course, the evolution of uh, central bank digital currencies. We've seen the pilots uh, in China and other places. We've seen the sand dollar launched in the Bahamas. And then we've had, obviously, the consultation by the um, Bank of England and the ongoing consultation by the ECB. And I think that um, I predicted in 2019 that 2020 we'd see a lot of activity in the CBDC space. And I think that's going to be a trend that continues. And we could well see, I think, pilots for a digital euro um, within Europe. We could well see the Bank of England taking steps towards the issuance of a CBDC in the UK, given that they've consulted we're waiting for their feedback on that consultation and you know Andrew Bailey has made comments to the effect that you know it's something that the bank would consider right so another big year for CBDC coming up oh it's definitely another big year for CBDC uh definitely another big year for um payment services legislation given that we already have um the fact that the European Commission is going to work on PSD3 
Um, and I think that across the globe, given the evolution of CBDC, given the digitalization of payments, given the initiatives that firms like, it's not uh, Libra anymore, it's Diem, want to launch, um, given the move to uh, faster payment systems in more and more jurisdictions, and layer on top of that the work that's being done um, at G20 level on cross-border payments. And I think that we're working towards financial services that are better serving consumers but on a global level okay well Nick, so thank you very much it's been a very interesting chat uh wish you all the best for 2021 i look forward to staying in touch on all these interesting areas oh thank you paul it's been a pleasure talking to you and a happy new year happy new year Thank you for listening to this episode of the New Money Review podcast, The Future of Money in 30 Minutes. You can find a write-up of this episode at our website, newmoneyreview.com, together with links to any important documents or sites mentioned during the discussion. If you enjoyed this podcast, please like it, share it, or tell a friend about it. At our website, newmoneyreview.com, you can also sign up to our newsletter, which will keep you informed of all New Money Review articles and podcasts. If you'd like to support New Money Review, you can do so via Patreon or using cryptocurrency. Details of how to do this are on the homepage of our website.